Good morning, everyone. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. As we continue our studies in the book of Assurance... We are just going to look at verses five through uh, six through eight this morning, uh, but I will read to verse 13 to set the context. The heavenly witness concerning Jesus. So we'll begin reading at verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. There are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son." And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the Son, and we are thankful for Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son, who is the Son of God. And we're thankful that he who is the Son took on human nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities, yet he is without sin. Thank you that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. We're thankful that he speaks to us. We're thankful that he died and pleads for us. We're thankful that he rules and defends us. And we're thankful that you bear witness concerning who he is. Thank you the Father spoke and said, this is my son. Thank you that Christ says, I bear witness, my works bear witness. And we're thankful that the Spirit bears witness by declaring him to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so we're thankful for the testimony concerning Christ. We're thankful that we do know who he is. We can have certainty of who he is. And we can be certain of the triune work of God when it comes to our salvation. And so help us not to be taken to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but help us to cling to what is true and help us to know that we are the people of the Holy Spirit because we have the Spirit and we can know this by what we say concerning Christ. We can know this by the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. We can know this by evidences in our life. And so we pray today would be a day of encouragement for your people that you'd uplift us, you would encourage us, you'd help us to know that we have the Holy Spirit and help us to know it by the truth. And we pray as well that you'd help us to grow in the truth, help us to grow in the things of God, help us to grow uh, according to your ways. And we also pray for any here today who do not know you. We pray that they would believe on Christ, that you would work by your spirit with the word to persuade them concerning the things of heaven, concerning the things of who Jesus is, that they might find life in him. We know that it is the Spirit who regenerates, it is the Spirit who gives a new heart, and yet we're thankful for the external word that goes forth and that your Spirit does work. And so we pray today would be the day of salvation for any here today who do not know you. And we ask and pray for all of us that you give us illumination. As we come to consider a difficult te text, 
We pray that you'd give us aid from on high, give us clarity of mind, help us to be focused uh, as we are tired and weary, but help us to set our mind upon you this morning. And we're thankful for the gift it is to uh, have you speak to us in your word. And we pray that we would hear you today, that we would hear the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And may we hear them, hear him uh, by the power of the Spirit. So be with us now, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Christianity is a supernatural religion. What that means is that in order for someone to be saved, it requires the supernatural work of God. There is a message that is presented. Here is Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. You must believe upon him. But the believing is a work of God, a work that God brings and works in the life of a sinner. But even though we believe upon Christ, even though the message that we believe is supernatural and it comes by way of a supernatural work, it doesn't mean there aren't any witnesses. It doesn't mean we can't have certainty concerning the things that God speaks in his word. That doesn't mean there aren't any proofs that demonstrate the truth of Jesus. Now, some of these proofs are supernatural, but they are still witnesses. These testimonies must be believed, and those who believe on Christ and believe in what is said concerning him can have assurance that they have eternal life. Now, remember, this whole book is all about assurance. We're getting close to the end. We're getting close uh, to the main thesis, which is in chapter 513. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, and the way you can know you have eternal life is based upon what you say. How you can know that you have the Holy Spirit is based upon what you say concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there were men who came to the church at Ephesus who were threatening the brethren at Ephesus, which is why Paul or John is writing. He's writing to encourage them. He's writing to remind them. He's writing to say, don't follow these men who deny that Jesus is the Christ, who deny that Jesus is the Son of God, but believe that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. You can know and have you assured that you are Christ's. And so the section then turns to deal with this witness about whom we believe. Jesus is the Christ and he is the son of God. This is a biblical claim that must be believed, but there are many witnesses concerning who he is. And so really verses 6 through 12 and even 13 deals with what it means uh, for God's witness uh, to, to be and what it means for us. We see the witnesses themselves in verses 6 through 8. Then we see in general what it means to receive this witness, eternal life. And then we see the application for the people at Ephesus and for us in verse 13. And so today we're dealing with primarily who the witnesses are concerning Jesus Christ. Now, the main problem throughout all these verses is if one does not receive the testimony. If one does not receive what is said concerning Jesus Christ, one does not believe the witnesses. But I also think there is another problem that can be gleaned from the verses we're looking at this morning. Namely, the misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. A misunderstanding of the Trinity, of our triune God. A misunderstanding of what we call the inseparable operations of our triune God. We, as, the, as Reformed folk, are the people of the Holy Spirit. And the heretics who are present at the time of John's writing, whom he's dealing with, are men who misunderstood the role and purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is poured out by the Father. The Spirit is poured out by Christ. 
to guide Christ's people into the truth. And the point is, if you claim to have the Spirit, but deny Christ, in reality, your claim is wrong. In reality, you do not have the Holy Spirit. If your emphasis is primarily on the Spirit, but not on Christ, then you do not have the Spirit whatsoever. To misunderstand Jesus, his person and his work, is an assurance that one does not have the Holy Spirit. And so John is writing to assure his hearers, here is how you know that you have the Holy Spirit. Here are witnesses that bear witness concerning who Jesus is. And so in verses 6 through 8, John provides the God-given witness about who Jesus is. He gives us the witnesses from heaven and the witnesses on the earth and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. It is a God-given witness that we'll see in verses 6 through 8. And we'll look at this God-given witness under two headings. First of all, we'll see our spiritual witness, verse 6. Then secondly, we'll see our threefold witness in verses 7 and 8. So our spiritual witness, verse 6. And then we'll see our threefold witness in verses 7 and 8. So let's first look at our spiritual witness in verse 6. Now, it's important to remember the context. We saw in verses 1 through 5 how John writes to remind the hearers what it means to be a child of God. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, so a Christological claim, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. One cannot say that Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is the Son of God, unless one is born of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. And all those who are born of God, all those who believe upon God, will, as an outworking of that salvation, seek to love one another by keeping his commandments. And as he says, his commandments are not burdensome. But then he also gives an encouragement that we have overcome the world. How do we overcome the world? But it is by faith in Jesus Christ, believing in the one who is victorious, believing in the one who is triumphant, believing in the one who reigns now supreme. That is where the Christian's victory lies. It's not based upon an experience I may have. It's not based upon whether I speak in tongues or not. It's not based upon whether I can give a prophecy or not. It's based upon Jesus Christ. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, which is something the heretics did not believe. They did not believe that he is the son of God. And you cannot overcome the world unless you are in Christ and believe that he is the son of God. And he has triumphed over sin and death. The comfort for the believer in a world filled with our remaining corruption, in a world filled with the influences of the world, in a world filled with the influences of the devil, we need to be encouraged and reminded where our victory lies. It is in Jesus who is the Christ and who is the son of God of God. But how do we know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God? Well, there are witnesses. There are witnesses that tell us and testify to who he is. And notice in verse 6, we see what is witnessed. Now, what is witnessed is also a witness itself. But what is witnessed in verse 6 is the ministry of the Son, the ministry of Jesus. Notice we see in verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. 
Now, I admit this verse is difficult. This whole section is very difficult. But probably what is meant by water refers to the baptism of Jesus by John at the beginning of his ministry. And what is meant by blood is the death that Christ dies at the end of his earthly ministry. So what we have here is the bookends of Christ's ministry. Certainly Jesus lived a perfect life since he was zero to age 33 when he died. But nonetheless, we see his ministry explicitly beginning at around age 30 when he is baptized. And so what is to be believed is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. What is it to be witnessed that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God, and he himself testifies that he is the Son of God? And so, by water refers to the baptism of Jesus that we see at the beginning of his ministry. There are a lot of connections with what we see in 1 John, with what we see in John's gospel. And in John 1, we see his baptism. We see in verse 26, John answered them saying, as John is baptizing, I baptize you with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And then we see in verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And then verse 32, and John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remaineth upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist bears witness Jesus at his baptism, witness is born concerning him and who he is. And perhaps sometimes we ask the question, why is it that the sinless Savior needs to be baptized? I mean, it's a baptism for the remission of sins. Well, many point out that it is because he is uh, willing to undergo, he is willing to die and rise again for a people who truly need to be washed. It's not that as though he himself needs to be baptized, but he is willing to undergo what baptism signifies that you and I might be washed in him, washed in the cleansing power of his blood, while clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we who were once filthy can be washed by him and by the Holy Spirit. And so it refers to his baptism. But perhaps there is some secondary uh, allusions as well. Perhaps it could refer to ritual washings of the Old Testament. In reality, it's not that far-fetched because John, especially in 1 John chapter 1, does allude back to various uh, institutions of the Old Covenant. And certainly when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he starts to baptize, people aren't asking themselves, why is he doing that? I wonder, I wonder what this means. Because they had the ritual washings. They had the purity system. The purity system is a pointer to baptism. The purity system points ahead to how we're going to be washed in the blood of Christ and washed in him. And so secondarily, it can refer to him being the one who uh, does away with the ceremonial laws and in him we are washed. But there's also probably another connection it's not as strong in my mind, but the reformers especially refer to it. By water refers to the ordinance of baptism. 
Now, brethren, baptism, I don't think that's necessarily the main thing in view, but when you consider what Jesus does, when you consider what points ahead to baptism, then we must consider what baptism signifies. What does baptism signify? It's not as though we're literally cleansed by the water, but baptism is an outward sign of an inward cleansing. It's an identifying of, of us dying and rising again with Christ, of being washed in him and being pure in him, being washed in him. So I think the main thing is Jesus' baptism, but what does that mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the ordinance of baptism? What does it mean as far as fulfillment goes? But the main thing is, it's what Jesus does in his ministry, not just his baptism, but as the one set apart to be the mediator for his people. And so water, the, the baptism, the blood refers to the death that he dies. We see the reference to his death a lot, especially in 1 John 1 how he is the one in him. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Driving to the point where he says in verse two, he himself is the propitiation. That's a big word, isn't it? But we talked about how it means the turning away of the wrath of God. Now, this word is very rare in the New Testament, but it has the entire sacrificial system in the background. That's why it's not far-fetched to draw out that Jesus is the one who fulfills what the, the bulls and goats point ahead to. And so certainly by his blood, another secondary illusion is the sacrifices that point ahead to him. And what does his sacrifice do for us? It's a once-for-all-time sacrifice and that's why we don't need the blood of bulls and goats anymore. Not as though the blood of bulls and goats could save, but what they pointed to, they pointed to Jesus Christ, they pointed to his dying, they pointed to him being that sacrifice for his people. If you don't believe me, just read the book of Hebrews. If you don't believe me, just read 1 John again and again. But we don't need a sacrificial system anymore because Christ is that once for all sacrifice. And then also to some degree as well, the reformers think that by blood refers to the Lord's Supper. Now again, we must highlight the fact that when we partake of the supper, we see the body and blood of Christ. Not literally, not the conversion, the changing of the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Christ, but it's a stooping to our nature where we see the sacrifice that Christ endured in our Stead. And certainly that is a witness, that is an encouragement for us as we press on in this fallen world. It's what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing amongst his people, and how he helps us press on in this present evil age filled with devils and filled with heretics because they have wrong views. And notice that's what he addresses in verse 6, not only by water, but by water and blood. Not only by water. That is the view of the heretics. It's a view of what they said. Remember, they denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh. They had a wrong view of matter. They had a wrong view of his body. And they said that it only, only appeared to actually come in the flesh. He didn't actually do it. But brethren, we need him to be man. We need him to be fully God and we need him to be fully man because it is man who has sinned against God. 
It is man who needs salvation. And it's only God who can bring about that salvation. And thankfully, in the wisdom of God and in the mystery of God, we have it in Christ. We have it in the hypostatic union, the one who is fully God and the one who is fully man. All our essential properties and common infirmities. He has a body. He has a soul like you and I do, according to his human nature. But he, uh, is, uh, uh, he does not sin. There is no sin in him without sin. And so we need him to come in the flesh. We need him to be a man. But here, this, is, uh, this idea of by water only is an indication that the heretics were concerned primarily with the spirit. Now remember, when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, what happens? The spirit descends upon him like a dove. What does Jesus do when he baptizes? Not that he literally dunks people, but what's his baptism? A baptism of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We wholeheartedly believe that very thing, dear brethren, but the problem is when we misunderstand it. You mean people in the first century misunderstood the place and purpose and mission of the Holy Spirit? The answer to that question, it's rhetorical, so I don't have to say anything. But yes, of course they misunderstood it. They misunderstood what the tongues signified, and people emphasized those things. I believe in the place of tongues, but I believe they have ceased. They were for a specific reason, and it was in a specific time in redemptive history. Well, here come these guys and these heretics and these men, and they say, it's about our experience. It's about what we feel. It's about what we think. It doesn't matter what we say about Jesus Christ, but it is based upon how we feel, what we perceive as the way in which we can be united to God. And they don't want Christ. And they're not wanting Christ is a clear sign they do not have the Holy Spirit. But guess who has the Holy Spirit? The people of God. And that's what, Jesus, that's what Jesus, John says. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Jesus says upon his finished work, upon the finishing of his mission, as he ascends into heaven uh, in his human nature, he's going to pour out the Spirit. And what's the Spirit going to do according to John 14, 15, and 16? He's going to guide his disciples into the truth. What he's saying here is that the people of God who believe that Jesus is the Christ have been persuaded internally by the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit of God bears witness in our hearts that we are the children of God. What is referred to here is the internal testimony of the Spirit. It requires a supernatural persuading of the things of God. Think about it. The virgin birth, that goes against nature. Uh, someone who rises from the dead, that goes against nature. One who is uh, uh, a being who is one God in three persons, that seems to go against our pea-sized brains. One who is one person in two natures without confusing the natures, that seems to blow our minds. And so it requires the work of the Spirit to persuade us concerning these things. And so how it works is there's the external preaching, there is the truth that goes forth, there is the word that goes forth, and the Spirit persuades internally. 
I speak concerning Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. John speaks concerning Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. But it requires the internal working of the Spirit to persuade you to persuade you concerning these very things. It requires a supernatural working. And notice how you and I can know that we have the Spirit, how you and I can know that the Spirit works. Again, not by experience, not by tongue talking, not by prophecies that have no resemblance to prophecies in the Old, uh, in the Old Testament or the New, but by the truth. That's how we're persuaded, dear brethren. By the truth, we're persuaded by doctrine. And it's a persuading that comes by the Holy Spirit. There's the word of God, what is said about Christ, and what you then say must coincide with the word. If it does not coincide with the word, you do not have the Holy Spirit. If it does not coincide with what is said concerning Jesus Christ in the word, you do not have the Holy Spirit. The only one who can say that Jesus is Lord is by the Holy Spirit. Spirit And Jesus does say as he prays in John 17, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. So the word goes forth. I wholeheartedly believe that. It's an external preaching, but it's an internal working by the Spirit. I wholeheartedly believe that, that the Spirit is working amongst God's people to save sinners and to strengthen them and persuade them more in the things of God. Certainly our confession talks about this in chapter 18 and certainly in chapter 1 of Holy Scripture. Chapter 18 is assurance, but of Holy Scripture talks about the beauty of Scripture. Our forefathers said, yet notwithstanding, there's all these things that point to the blessings of Scripture, the unity of the whole, the, the beauty of the doctrine, but it still requires a work of the Spirit. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So the Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness to the truth, who testifies to the truth, who functions as that witness. Why? Because he is the truth. <laughs> There is only one being who is the truth, dear brethren. We've talked about the doctrine of simplicity. And again, we're going to use language today because I want us to be educated. I'm just going to say them over and over again in sermons. I'm probably not going to change my definitions a whole lot just so we hear it over and over again. The doctrine of simplicity, the opposite of it, is not something, something that's complex. When I say God is simple, I'm not saying he's stupid. I'm saying he is one. <laughs> I'm saying he is there. he's not made up of parts. And even, too, when you consider the Trinity, it's not part Father, part Son, part Spirit that adds up to be God. That's not how it works. All that is in God is God. And notice, it's not just the Spirit who guides in truth, but the Spirit is truth itself. I mean, we have a very clear passage here for us that teaches the deity of the Holy Spirit while also discussing and unpacking what that means that our God is triune as well. Just as we saw that God is love, we see that the spirit is truth. Truth is his essence. It's the essential nature of the Holy Spirit. And if he is the truth, then he bears witness about the truth of Jesus. See how important doctrine is? 
The Spirit bears witness concerning these things. How important the truth is to give us the comfort that we need in the face of heretics who might threaten those things. And so the application is, an application doesn't always have to be, here's what I need to do. Application can be, here's what God has done for you, and here's the truth concerning that. And when someone comes to try and take away that assurance, turn them away because here's what we have. We have the present witness of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We might not see that with tongues and magical things happening, but we know it by the internal working of the Holy Spirit. Reformed people are the people of the Spirit. People always harp on us and say, you just care about doctrine and truth. Well, the Spirit is truth, so we should probably just care about doctrine and truth because that is what the Spirit does, guides us in the truth. And the truth is what encourages us and uplifts us when there are threats out there who try to take away that assurance. Here comes some guy and says, yeah, Jesus didn't die on the cross, but you can have this special experience and feel great by doing these things. Wrong. We need assurance. We need a witness, and we need that certainty of how we have overcome. This assurance is meant to be applicable to all of God's people, that we have overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by faith, not by escape. That's what these men were trying to do, right? They're trying to escape. We want to leave matter. No, brethren, we can be assured now that we are Christ. We can be assured now that we have the Holy Spirit. We are a people of the Spirit. We believe the Spirit works invisibly, regenerating hearts. We see that born-again language in uh, John chapter 3. You must be born again. You don't know where the wind blows, so too is it with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is truth. The Spirit persuades and teaches concerning the truth. We walk as believers by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called what? The fruit of the Spirit. That's why when we, you know, are trying, that's why the Spirit wars against the flesh with our remaining corruption. We need to be reminded that we have the Holy Spirit. And he bears witness now, doesn't he? Again, it's not by a mysterious and experiential thing. There is mystery involved, but not by experiential things. But as the word goes forth, and as sinners are like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, work of the Holy Spirit. Or you're struggling with a certain fruit of the Spirit. I'm not a very patient person, and I'm really struggling with patience. Lord, help me with my patience. And as things progress in life, God answers that prayer. We can be assured that you have the Holy Spirit. See, brethren, we can be assured of the internal working of the Spirit, even if we don't see all these magical things that happen or have this certain experience, but we know that he works. And thankfully, again, there's that external proclamation, what the preacher says, what God says in his word. Certainly, John uh, is not afraid to use proofs in 1 John 1. I saw him. I beheld him. I touched him. I saw the one who is the word of life but again, it's the internal witness by the Spirit. Last week, we had passed a pastor from Kenya, Pastor Ogalo, and he is absolutely right. Pastors need to argue. Pastors need to remonstrate. Pastors need to provide biblical argumentation. I wholeheartedly believe that. Externally, I should try and persuade. But we also believe that God works by the Spirit. I speak, I persuade, but it is only the Spirit who can work in the hearts of God's people. And so what you say concerning Jesus is paramount. That will tell you whether you are of the Spirit or not. 
Have you believed he is the Christ? Have you believed he is the Son of God? Have you believed that he lived, died, and rose again? And thankfully, we have that spiritual witness. But thankfully, we also have a threefold witness, verses 7 and 8. So that was our spiritual witness, verse 6. Let's then look at our threefold witness in verses 7 and 8. I noticed the triune witness in heaven in verse 7. Now, I have to make a few comments about text criticism, which is a subject that does not scratch my itch, dear brethren. But some versions, some of you might have the ESV or the NIV, but perhaps verse 7, where it says, these three bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one, is not included. That is primarily based on modern manuscript discoveries and manuscripts that modern academics view as weightier. But the exclusion of verse 7 is a modern phenomenon. You see, we must consider what church history says. We must consider not just manuscripts, but we must consider throughout the ages what the church has testified And for the most part, throughout history, the church has testified that verse 7 is included. Not saying there can't be some difficulty, but I do believe verse 7 is included. What has happened throughout the past 200 years is the church has abdicated its role as the defender of the truth. God entrusted the church with preserving his word. And so we must consider what men of old in the past have said concerning his word. And so as you read the reformers and the high orthodox, when I say high orthodox, I'm just referring to a time period. I'm not referring to Eastern orthodoxy. I'm referring to a time when our confession is written. They refer to 1 John 5, 7 without any issues. It's in our confession, brethren. Again, we must consider the testimony of the church throughout the ages. It's used as a proof text for the Trinity in our confession, which was written in 1677. Another thing that sometimes comes up with respect to verse 7 is that there isn't a lot of witness when it comes to the first few centuries. That is wrong. (laughs) You see, Cyprian, Bithyp of Carthage, Bishop of Carthage, died A.D. 258, quotes it in his unity of the church with John 10.30. He quotes these three are one. And John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. So he quotes it with that. And then Tertullian, in, uh, born A.D. 160, so not that long after uh, 1 John is written, he quotes it in, a, uh, in one of his treatises, in one of his letters against a certain person, also with John 10.30. So the point is it's present. The point is, it is there. The point is, it was used during, throughout the centuries and the ages. Now, again, I know there's a lot of manuscriptural evidence, and there's a lot of wonderful things about manuscripts that have been discovered, but we can't just jettison what men of old have taught. We can't just jettison God's providence throughout the ages. So that's just my comments on why it is there. I also think the biblical context seems to indicate why it is included as well. Because how is it that God bears witness and is there any place in the Bible where all three bear witness? The baptism of Jesus. That's right in the context, isn't it? By water. 
You see, by water isn't just what is witnessed, but by water also bears witness concerning who Jesus is. And let's just say for the sake of argument, it's not included, although I believe it is. It's just an interpolation. I've always had the view that interpolations help us interpret the text. And if it was an interpolation, if it was an insertion, then clearly whoever inserted it thought that these verses were dealing with what? The Trinity. So it is Trinitarian through and through. It is doctrinal through and through. And I do believe it should be included based upon a theological argument uh, based upon the testimony of Scripture throughout the ages. So we're going to unpack it. So there are three that bear witness in heaven, bear witness concerning Jesus, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And we know that the Trinity is a great mystery, and as I said, we're going to use Trinitarian language to help us think through and make sure we don't say something we shouldn't concerning the Trinity. But when we consider the common work of God, so the common work of the triune God is to save sinners. Sometimes if we refer to a specific person in that, way, in that salvation, it is called an appropriation, common to the three, but attributed in a particular way to the person. And we see this very clearly with this witness. It's the one testimony of God, but we see how each person testifies to it. And notice where the father testifies. Where does the father witness that you are my son? the baptism of Jesus. That's why we quoted Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Where else does the father bear witness that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ? That Jesus is the one who came and lived, died, and rose again? The transfiguration. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So the father bears witness, but the word himself, Jesus, also bears witness. We see this in his words. We see this in his works. We see this as the one who has come from the above. And we see this explicitly in John 5 and in John 8. You can turn with me to John 5. Verses 31 and following. If I were bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was that burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time. That would be a dig to the Pharisees, wouldn't it? You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. And then also in John 8, excuse me, verses 13 and following, verse 14, again, this is talking to the Pharisees. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law 
that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So the Father bears witness. Jesus bears witness to who he is. The Holy Spirit also bears witness as well. We see the divine testimony, the divine assurance, when the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism. It's not just his willingness to die and rise, up, rise again, his willingness to undergo that judgment for us, but it's also his appointment, his being set apart as the mediator, being set apart as the one who will die for his people. And the Spirit testifies to this very thing. Not only that, we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. Not only that, we have the internal testimony of the Spirit who bears witness. And we also have the Spirit who bears witness as Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So these three, our triune God bears witness. And notice these three are one. One in being and one in operation. Listen to John Gill. He says, which is to be understood not only of their unity and agreement in their testimony, they testifying of the same thing, the sonship of Christ, but of their unity in essence or nature, they being the one God. So that this passage holds forth and asserts the unity of God, a trinity of persons in the Godhead, the proper deity of each person and their distinct personality, the unity of essence in that they are one a trinity of persons in that they are three, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and are neither more nor fewer. The deity of each person, for otherwise their testimony would not be the testimony of one God, and their distinct personality, for were they not three distinct persons, they could not be three testifiers or three that bear record. See, John Gill had no problems referring to 1 John 5, 7 as part of the canon and as part of Scripture. He had no problem defending and demonstrating that what we see here is a testimony, certainly of Christ, but a testimony to who our God is. He is one in three. One being, three persons. We don't confound the persons, nor do we divide the substance. They're not distinguished by nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar properties and personal relations. The Father unbegotten, the Son eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. That is how we distinguish, but it's not three beings. It is one being who eternally exists in three persons. And because he is one being, there is one operation. The one operation, the one witness, threefold execution. One witness of the triune God, one witness of God, that testimony that he says concerning his son, concerning what God has done for us in the son. So the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. But then there's also a threefold witness on earth, verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. And we already talked about the Spirit, that internal working. We've talked about the water. We've talked about the blood. We've talked about what the Spirit does. We've talked about Christ and what he does. What we see here are the missions of the Spirit and the missions of the Son. And the missions, again, we use that language to talk about, uh, uh, to reveal something about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate. The eternally begotten one is the one who is sent in his mission to take on human nature. The eternally preceding one is the one who is poured out 
and bears witness. So we see this here. The Father doesn't really have a mission, although certainly the triune work of God to save sinners is part of the you know, Father, Son, and Spirit say, but it, it reveals uh, the mission is something in created effect, which is what we see with the Son and what we see with the Holy Spirit. But we see the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they bear witness and they agree. Now consider the ancient Near Eastern world and the Greco-Roman world. They need three witnesses to testify to something that's true, right? Bearing false witness could have life or death ramifications. They didn't have forensics. They didn't have cameras that check my face all the time and want to figure out who I am and they're everywhere. They didn't have those types of technologies. Those are viewed as witnesses. But in the Greco-Roman and ancient Near Eastern world, it was eyewitnesses. That's why bearing false witness is a very serious thing. It's not just lying to your parents that if you did take a cookie from the cookie jar and you say, I didn't do that, that's not right. But it's even more heinous than that and more serious than that. But yet we have three. We have the triune God bearing witness. We have the spirit, the water, and the blood bearing witness. Bearing witness. We, there are difficult things in Christianity. Resurrection from the dead. Uh, again, the virgin birth. But there are still myriads of witnesses. Four gospels. Twelve disciples. Many prophets that speak concerning this one who is the Son of God, and yet people will not believe. People have no problem believing that the philosopher Plato existed. Do you know the earliest manuscript we have of Plato? Ninth century. You know how many of the earliest manuscripts we have uh, in, uh, of the Bible? I mean, it's like first, second, third. I mean, close. 5,800, dear brethren, that all line up doctrinally. They all match myriads of witnesses, and yet people will not believe, which teaches us what? It requires a work of the Holy Spirit. There's tons of witnesses, and yet it requires the work of the Holy Spirit. We can persuade, but it is the work of the water, Spirit, water, and blood. And all these things confirm the message that we heard, it confirms the message that the, the, the people to whom John is writing heard, it is Christ. It is he who bears witness of himself, and it is the Spirit who bears witness concerning him. It's what the Father said concerning him, what the Word said concerning himself, and what the Spirit bears concerning him. And all these witnesses agree. In Mark 14, when Jesus is on trial before the Pharisees, none of their witnesses agreed. But here we have all these witnesses agree. And again, this inseparable witness of our God is meant to be an encouragement and an assurance. Here come these heretics, and they're going to threaten. They're going to shake if you believe what they say. They're going to shake your faith. But don't be carried about to and fro. If someone comes along and says, watch, says, I'm going to have this thing come to pass. There's going to be this magic thing that I do. And then says, let's worship Baal. How do you know not to follow them even though those things come to pass? By what is said. What is said concerning Christ. You believe that he is the son of God. You believe that he is the Christ. This is where our assurance lies. How our good God gives us assurances to know the truth, to know that we have eternal life. To know that it really was the eternal son who assumes a human nature without the <clears throat> taking away without diminishing, without subtracting any of his deity. 
It is the eternal spirit who has been poured out and given to us. We've seen this already in the book. We've seen it in 1 John 3, 24, the spirit whom he has given us. We've seen this in 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. These, all these witnesses and even more going back to baptism and the Lord's Supper. God stoops to our nature. We don't believe in visuals, right? I don't have a screen filled with movies to try and illustrate things for you because that's nonsense. But we have two things that are pictures, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are a means of grace, are they not? When someone is baptized, hopefully that happens again very soon, someone gets baptized, we see the dying and rising again. We see that washing, and it is a means of grace. It's not just for the party being baptized. That's why if someone is being baptized, you really should be there. If we do in the evening service, come to the evening service and see them be baptized. And same with the Lord's Supper. When I say, you know, it, you know we speak in a figurative way, but we recognize the connection between the sign and the thing signified. Christ's body broken, Christ's blood shed. There it is for us. God stooping to our nature. Christ's body broken, here is my body, here is my blood. That is for us, dear brethren. That is for us as we walk this world, as we are pilgrims in this land, to give us the assurance and comfort that we fed upon Christ by faith, and he is with us now. So brethren, God is good to give us these ordinance. God is good to give us many witnesses of who Jesus is. The thing is, do we believe it? Do we hold to it? Do we cling to what is said concerning him? And if you're an unbeliever here today, again, there are many witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Will you believe it? Will you believe upon him? If the triune God bears witness, why do you reject it? Why do you reject this heavenly witness? Well, let us pray. Our good God, we are thankful for your goodness to stoop to us. We are thankful for your goodness to reveal yourself to us, and we're thankful for your goodness to bear witness concerning who Jesus is. Without your supernatural working and internal uh, testimony of the Spirit, it is hard for the carnal mind to consider that Jesus, a man, is the Son of God. It is hard for the carnal mind to consider that he was born of a virgin. It's hard for the carnal mind to consider that he was raised from the dead, yet we know it is you who, do, who has done it. We know these things to be true, and we know these things to be true because of what is said in your word and because of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. We know we do not always see the, the Spirit working, but we know He does. We're thankful that He guides in truth. He guides us in truth. He persuades us in the things of truth. And we pray that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit in the things that we say and how we act, but that we would cling to what is true, that we would cling to what is good, that as we hear the truth and we are nourished by the truth, as we hear of the Holy Spirit, May we also walk by the Spirit. If we have died to Christ and been crucified with him, if we live by the Spirit, may we now walk by the Spirit. And so we are thankful for the encouragements you give to us in the Scriptures. We're thankful for the ways you help us and bear witness concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Thank you for his ministry. Thank you for the miracles that he did. Thank you for the death that he died. Thank you for the rising from the dead, the ascension into heaven, his current session and reign, and thank you that as these things have happened, 
so too will Christ come again. And we pray that you'd give us the encouragement that we need and comfort that we need and assurances that we need in the face of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us to know how we overcome, and we overcome by faith in Christ. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them by your spirit. Persuade them, change their hearts, show them that they are a sinner and they are in need of a great Savior. So thank you for your witness. Thank you for the certainty of it. May this give us comfort as we go into the world. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.